No Cross, No Crown by William Penn Chapter 6 Spiritual Worship There are others of a more refined view and reformed practice who dare not use, much less adore, a piece of wood or stone, or an image of silver or gold. Nor will they allow that pomp in worship practiced by others, as though Christ's worship were of this world, though his kingdom is of another. Yet, though these are doctrinally averse to such superstitions, they do not refrain from bowing to their own religious ideas, while esteeming such things as go against the grain of their fleshly ease across too great to bear. For if they abstain from gross and scandalous sins, or if the act is not committed, though the thoughts of it are embraced, so that it has a full course in the mind, they think themselves safe enough, within the bounds of discipleship and the limits of Christianity. But this also falls far short of the true discipline of Christ's cross, and those who flatter themselves with taking this up will, in the end, be deceived with the sandy foundation and the midnight cry of the bridegroom. For Christ said, I say unto you, that for every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account in the day of judgment. It is not the performing of religious duties, but the source of the performance that God looks at. Men may, and some do, cross their own wills in their own wills, a voluntary omission or commission. But who has required this at your hands, is what the Lord said to the Jews of old, when they seemed eager to serve him, but in a way of their own contriving or inventing, and in their own time and will. These came not with a soul truly touched and prepared by the divine power of God, but with bodily worship only, which the apostle tells us profits little. Alas, not keeping to the cross in worship, as well as in other things, has been a great cause of the troublesome superstition that is yet in the world, for men have no more brought their worship to the light than they have their sins. Indeed, the one they have ignorantly thought a sort of excuse for the other, never considering that their religious performances should need a cross or a defense. True worship can only come from a heart prepared by the Lord, a preparation which is by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. For certainly, if God's children are to be led by this Spirit in the general course of their lives, as Paul teaches, much more should this be the case in their worship to their Creator and Redeemer. Whatever prayer is offered, or doctrine uttered, which does not come from the preparation of the Holy Spirit, is not acceptable with God, nor can it be the true evangelical worship which is in spirit and truth. For what are eloquent and passionate words to God Almighty, or the dedication of any place or time to Him. He is a spirit to whom words, places, and times, strictly considered, are improper and inadequate. Though they are the instruments of public worship, they are but bodily and visible, and cannot carry our requests any further with God, much less recommend them to the invisible Creator. Words are for the sake of the congregation, but it is the language of the soul that God hears. Nor can the soul rightly groan or speak to Almighty God except by the assistance of His Spirit. The soul of man, however lively in other things, is dead to God until He breathes the Spirit of life into it. It cannot live to Him 
much less worship him without it. Thus God, by the prophet Ezekiel, tells us in a vision concerning the restoration of mankind, I will open your graves and put my spirit in you and you shall live. Now, Christ teaching his disciples to pray is no argument against this, for the issue is not whether men can repeat his words, as is now superstitiously and presumptuously practiced, but whether they can say them with the same heart and under the same qualifications as his poor disciples and followers did. For both the disciples then, and all true disciples now, are not to pray their own prayers, but rather his, according as he enables them. Now consider, if we are told not to take thought what we shall say when we come before worldly princes, because it shall then be given to us, and if it is then not we who speak, but the Spirit of our Heavenly Father that speaks in us, Matthew 10.20, much less can our natural ability, study, and forms of speech be acceptable in our approaches to the great Prince of Princes, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. It is His help that we need, and He will give it if we are truly His children. For not only the mouth of the body, but the mouth of the soul is shut until God opens it. But being opened by his Spirit, he loves to hear the language of it. Indeed, his ear is open to all such requests, and his Spirit strongly intercedes for those that offer them. But the body ought never to go before the soul into prayer. But it may be asked, how shall this preparation be obtained? I answer, by waiting patiently, yet watchfully and intently upon God. Lord, says the psalmist, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. You must not think your own thoughts, nor speak your own words, but retire from all the confused imaginations that are apt to throng and press upon the mind. This indeed is the silence of the Holy Cross. Think not to win the Almighty with well-composed matter, cast into the most skillful phrase. No, one groan, one sigh from a wounded soul, a heart touched with true remorse, a sincere and godly sorrow, which is the work of God's Spirit, excels and prevails with God. Therefore, stand still in your mind and wait to feel something from God to prepare and dispose you to worship Him truly and acceptably. Thus, taking up the cross and shutting the doors and windows of the soul against everything that would interrupt your attendance upon God, no matter how pleasant the object may be in itself, or how lawful or needful it is at other seasons, the power of the Almighty will break in, and His Spirit will prepare the heart that it may offer up an acceptable sacrifice. It is He that reveals to the soul its true needs, and presses them upon it, and when it cries, he alone can supply them. Petitions which do not spring from such a sense and preparation are formal and fictitious. They are not true. For men pray in their own blind desires, and not in the will of God, and his ear is stopped to such things. But for the mere sighing of the poor and the crying of the needy, God has said he will arise. Yes, for the poor in spirit, the desolate souls, those who need assistance, who are almost overwhelmed, who feel their need and cry aloud for a deliverer, who have none on earth to help, none in heaven but him, nor anything on the earth in comparison of him, these he will deliver. 
He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear him, and delivers them. Psalm 34, verses 6 and 7. He invites all to come and taste how good he is. Yes, he will bless those that fear the Lord, both small and great. Psalm 115, 13. But what is all this to those who are not hungry? The healthy need no physician. The full have no need to sigh, nor the rich to cry for help. Those who are not sensible of their inward needs have no fears and terrors upon them, who feel no need of God's power to help them, nor the light of his countenance to comfort them. What have these to do with prayer? Their devotion is at best a mockery of the Almighty. They know not, they need not, they desire not what to pray for. They pray that the will of God may be done, and yet constantly do their own. They ask for grace, but abuse what they have. They pray for the Spirit, but resist it in themselves and scorn it in others. They request the mercies and goodness of God, but feel no real need of them. In this inward numbness, they are as unable to praise God for what they have, as to pray for what they have not. It is written, They shall praise the Lord that seek him, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry with good things. Psalm twenty-two twenty-six. This also is reserved for the poor and needy, and for those that fear God. Let the spiritually poor and the needy praise your name. You that fear the Lord praise him, and you seed of Jacob glorify him. Jacob was a plain man, of an upright heart, and they that are such are his seed. And though with him they may be as poor as worms in their own eyes, yet they receive power to wrestle with God and prevail as he did. Without the preparation and consecration of this power, no man is fit to come before God, or else it is a matter of less holiness and reverence to worship God under the gospel than it was in the times of the law when all sacrifices were sprinkled before they were offered, and the offerers were consecrated before they approached the Lord. If the touching of a dead or unclean animal made them unfit for the temple or sacrifice, or even for society with the clean, until first sprinkled and sanctified, how can we think so lowly of the worship instituted by Christ in gospel times, believing it to allow unprepared and unsanctified offerings? Can those who daily touch, in their thoughts, words, and deeds, what is morally unclean, rightly worship the pure God, without coming to the blood of Jesus that sprinkles the conscience from dead works? It is an outright contradiction. The unclean cannot acceptably worship what is holy, nor the impure worship what is perfect. There is a holy union and communion between Christ and his followers, but there is none at all between Christ and Belial, between him and those who disobey his commandments and spurn his blessed cross and self-denial. And just as with sin, so too formality cannot worship God, even though the manner be of God's own ordination. This made the prophet cry out, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 6 6-8 The royal prophet, sensible of this, calls thus upon God, O Lord, you open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. He dared not open his own lips, for he knew that this could not rightly praise God. For you do not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. If my formal offerings would serve, you would not want them, for you have no delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm fifty-one, sixteen, and 17. And why? Because this is God's work. The effect of his power and his own works shall praise him. God himself speaks to the same purpose by the mouth of Isaiah, in opposition to the formalities and lip worship of the degenerate Jews. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the true worshiper, one of God's preparing, circumcised in heart and ear, that resists not the Holy Spirit, as those lofty professing Jews did. And seeing this was then, even in the time of the law, which was the dispensation of external and shadowy performances, can we expect acceptance without the preparation of the Spirit in these gospel days, which is the proper time for the pouring out of the Spirit? By no means. God is still what He was, and none are His true worshippers except such as worship Him in His own pure Spirit. Of these He is tender as the apple of His eye. The rest do but mock Him. Hear what immediately follows in Isaiah, for it is the state of Christendom at this day. He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering, as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. Isaiah 66.3 Let none now say, We do not present those kinds of offerings, for that is not the matter. God was not offended with the offerings, but the offerers. These were the legal forms of sacrifice appointed by God. But the people, not presenting them in that frame of spirit and under that disposition of soul that was required, God declared his abhorrence, and that with great aggravation. Elsewhere, by the same prophet, he bids them, Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Your Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. This is a most terrible denunciation of their worship. And why? Because their hearts were polluted. They loved not the Lord with their whole hearts, but broke his law, rebelled against his spirit, and did not do what was right in his sight. 
the cause is plain by the remedy he prescribes. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek judgment, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Upon these terms and nothing less, he bids them come to him and tells them that though their sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and though they be as crimson, they shall be white as wool. So true is that notable passage of the psalmist, Come and hear, all you that fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But truly, God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Psalm 66, 16-20 Much might be cited to show the displeasure of God against even his own forms of worship when performed without his spirit and without the necessary preparation of the heart in man which only he can work or give. More than all other penmen of sacred writ, this is most frequently and emphatically recommended to us by the example of the psalmist. David, repeatedly calling to mind his own great slips and the cause of them, and the way by which he came to be accepted of God and to obtain strength and comfort from him, often reminds himself to wait upon God. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day long. His soul looked to God for salvation, to be delivered from the snares and evils of the world. This shows an inward exercise, a spiritual attendance that stood not in external forms, but in an inward divine aid. And truly, David had great encouragement so to do, for the goodness of God invited him to it and strengthened him in it. For, he says, I waited patiently upon the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. The Lord appeared inwardly to console David's soul, which waited for his help to be delivered from the temptations and afflictions that were ready to overwhelm it and to receive security and peace. Therefore, he says, The Lord has established my going, that is, fixed his mind in righteousness. Before, every step David took bemired him, and he was scarce able to go without falling. Temptations assailed him on every side, but he waited patiently upon the Lord with his mind retired, watchful and intent upon God's law and spirit, feeling the Lord inclined to him. His needy and sensible cry entered heaven and prevailed, and then came rescue and deliverance. In God's time, not David's, strength was afforded to go through his exercises and surmount all his troubles. Thus, a new song was put into his mouth, even praises to our God. Surely, this was a song of God's making and putting, and not his own. Another time, we find him crying thus, as the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul pants after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? This goes beyond formality and can be tied to no outward lesson. By this we may see that true worship is an inward work 
and the soul must be touched and raised in heavenly desires by the heavenly spirit, and that the true worship is in God's presence. When shall I come and appear? Not in the temple, nor with outward sacrifices, but before God, in his presence. The souls of true worshipers must see God and make their appearance before him, and for this they wait, they pant, they thirst. Oh, how has the greater part of Christendom degenerated from David's example? And it is no wonder, for this good man tells us, Truly my soul silently waits upon God. And he charges his soul to do so. Oh, my soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. It is as if he said, No one else can prepare my heart or supply my needs. My expectation is not from my own voluntary performances, or the bodily worship I can give. These are of no value. They can neither help me nor please him. But I wait upon him for strength and power to present myself in such a way as may be most pleasing to him. For he that prepares the sacrifice will certainly accept it. In two verses he repeats three times, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. Yes, so intently and with such unweariedness of soul does he wait, that in one place he says, My eyes fail while I wait for my God. He was not content with so many prayers, or a set form of worship, or mere repetition. No, he did not leave off till he found the Lord and the comforts of his presence, which brought the answer of love and peace to his soul. Nor was this practice unique to David, as a man more than ordinarily inspired, for he speaks of it as being the way of worship amongst the true people of God, the spiritual Israel, the circumcised in heart of his day. Behold, as the eyes of the servants looked to the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. In another place he says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. This was the way of the truly godly of that day, by which they came to enjoy God and worship him acceptably. And from his own experience of the benefit of waiting upon God and the saints' practice of those times, the psalmist recommends it to others, saying, Wait upon the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. Wait in faith and patience, and he will come to save you. Again, rest in the Lord and wait patiently upon him. Cast yourself upon him, be contented, and wait for him to help you in your needs. You cannot think how near he is to help those that wait upon him. Yet again, he bids us, wait upon the Lord and keep his way. Behold, the reason why so few profit. They are out of his way, and such can never rightly wait upon him. But David had great reason for what he said, for with much comfort and advantage he had met the Lord in his blessed way. The prophet Isaiah tells us that though the chastisements of the Lord were sore upon the people for their backslidings, yet in the way of his judgments, that is, in the way of his rebukes and chastening, they waited for him 
and the desire of their soul was to his name and the remembrance of him. Isaiah 26.8 They were content to be reproved and disciplined, for they had sinned. And the knowledge of God in this way was very desirable to them. But did he not come at last, and that in mercy too? Yes, he did, and they knew him when he came, an experience the carnal world knows not. Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. Isaiah 25, 9 O blessed enjoyment, O precious confidence, here was a waiting in faith which prevailed. All worship that is not in faith is fruitless to the worshiper, as well as displeasing to God, which faith is the gift of God, and the nature of it is to purify the heart and give such as truly believe victory over the world. But they go on. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And the prophet adds, Blessed are all those who wait upon God. And why? For those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The encouragement is great. Oh, hear him once more. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits upon him. Isaiah 64, 4. Behold the inward life and joy of the righteous, the true worshipers, those whose spirits have bowed to the appearance of God's Spirit in them, leaving and forsaking all that it appeared against, and embracing whatever it led them to. In Jeremiah's time, the true worshipers also waited upon God, and he assures us that the Lord is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Likewise, the prophet Hosea exhorted the church to turn and wait upon God. Therefore, turn you to your God, observe mercy and judgment, and wait on your God continually. And Micah is very zealous and resolute in this good exercise, saying, I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. So did all the children of the Spirit who thirsted after an inward sense of Him. It is charged upon Israel in the wilderness as the cause of their disobedience and ingratitude to God that they waited not for his counsels. Psalm 106.13 And we may be sure that this is our duty and is expected from us, for God requires it in Zephaniah. Therefore wait upon me, says the Lord, until the day that I arise. Oh, that all who profess the name of God would so wait, not arising to worship without him, but waiting to feel his stirrings and arisings in them to prepare and sanctify them. Christ expressly charged his disciples that they should stay in Jerusalem and wait till they had received the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in order to prepare them for preaching the glorious gospel of Christ to the world. And though that was an extraordinary outpouring for an extraordinary work, Yet the degree does not change the rule. On the contrary, if so much waiting and preparation by the Spirit was required to fit them to preach to men, some, at least, must be needful to fit us to speak to God. I will close this great scriptural doctrine of waiting upon the Lord with that passage in John about the pool of Bethesda. 
Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. This is a most exact representation of what is intended by all that has been said upon the subject of waiting. For as there was then an outward and legal Jerusalem, so there is now a gospel and spiritual Jerusalem, the church of God consisting of the faithful. The pool in old Jerusalem, in some sort, represented that fountain which is now set open in the new Jerusalem. That pool was for those who were under bodily infirmities. This fountain is for all that are disabled in soul. There was an angel that then moved the water to render it beneficial. It is God's angel now, the great angel of his presence, that blesses this fountain with success. Those who went in before, but did not watch the angel and take advantage of his motion, found no benefit from their stepping in. And those now, who do not wait for the moving of God's angel, but by a devotion of their own forming and timing rush before God as a horse into battle, hoping for success, are sure to miscarry in their expectations. Therefore, even as those who needed and desired to be cured then waited with all patience and intentness upon the angel's motion, so the true worshipers of God do now, who need and pray for his presence, which is the life of their souls, even as the sun is to the plants of the field. These have often tried the unprofitableness of their own work and are now come to the true Sabbath. They dare not put up an invention of their own, or offer an unsanctified request, much less impose a bodily worship when the soul is really insensible or unprepared by the Lord. In the light of Jesus, they wait to be prepared, retired, and withdrawn from all thoughts that cause the least distraction and discomposure in the mind, till they see the angel move, until their beloved is pleased to awake, for they dare not call him before his time. They fear to contrive a devotion in his absence, for they know it is not only unprofitable, but reprovable. Who has required this at your hands, said the Lord to Israel? He that believes makes not haste. They that worship with their own resources can do only as the Israelites did, turn their earrings into a molten image and be cursed for their labors. And they fared no better who gathered sticks, kindled a fire, and encircled themselves about with the sparks that they had kindled. For God told them they should lie down in sorrow. Isaiah 50.11 This is not only of no advantage or good to them, but also incurs a judgment from the Lord. Sorrow and anguish of soul shall be their portion. Alas, flesh and blood would readily pray, but it cannot wait. It is eager to be a saint, but it cannot abide to do or suffer the will of God. With the tongue it blesses God, and with the tongue it curses men, made in his image. It calls Jesus Lord, but not by the Holy Spirit. It often names the name of Christ, yes, and bows the knee to it too, but it departs not from iniquity, which is abominable to God. There are four things necessary to worship God aright. 
all of which put the performance of worship beyond man's power. The first is the sanctification of the worshiper. Secondly, the consecration of the offering, which has already been spoken to at large. Thirdly, what to pray for, which no man knows without the aid of God's Spirit, and therefore, without that Spirit, no man can truly pray. The Apostle puts this beyond dispute, saying, We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. Men unacquainted with the work and power of the Holy Spirit are ignorant of the mind of God, and these, certainly, can never please Him with their prayers. It is not enough to merely know that we are in need, for how do we know whether our needs were not sent to us as a blessing? Disappointments to the proud, losses to the covetous, stripes to the negligent. To pray God to remove these would be to secure our own destruction, not help the salvation of our soul. The vile world knows all things carnally, after a fleshly manner and interpretation, and too many, who desire to be thought enlightened, are apt to call these gifts of providence by wrong names. For instance, afflictions, they call judgments, and trials, which are more precious than their beloved gold, they call miseries. On the other hand, they call preferments of the world by the name of honor, and its wealth they call happiness. Therefore, what to keep, what to reject, what to want, is a difficulty which only God can resolve in the soul. And since God knows far better than we what we need, He can better tell us what to ask than we can tell Him. This made Christ exhort His disciples to avoid long and repetitious prayers, telling them that their Heavenly Father knew what they needed before they asked. He therefore gave them a pattern of prayer, not, as many have imagined, to be a text for human liturgies, which are notorious for length and repetition, but expressly to reprove and avoid such things. Yet, how to pray is still of greater importance than what to pray, not merely the request, but the frame of the petitioner's spirit. The what may be proper, but the how defective. As I said, God needs not be told of our needs by us, Indeed, he must tell them to us. Yet he desires to be told them from us, both that we may learn to seek him and that he may so meet with us. To this man will I look, says the Lord, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembles at my word. He looks to the sick at heart, the wounded soul, the hungry and thirsty, the weary and heavy laden ones, such as sincerely need a helper. But even these three are not sufficient in themselves to complete true gospel worship, for a fourth requisite must be had, which is faith, true faith, precious faith, the faith that purifies the heart, overcomes the world, and is the victory of the saints. It is this faith which animates prayer and presses it home like the persistent widow who would not be denied, or the one to whom Christ said, O woman, your faith is great. Yet this faith is not in our power, for it is the gift of God, and from Him we must receive it. With one grain of it, more work is done, more deliverance is wrought, and more goodness and mercy received than by all the runnings, willings, and toilings of man, with all his religious inventions and bodily exercises. This, duly weighed, will easily show why so much worship brings so little profit to the world as we see it does. 
for true faith has been lost. They ask and receive not. They seek and find not. They knock, and the door is not opened to them. The case is plain. Their requests are not mixed with that purifying faith by which they should prevail, even as good Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. The truth is, the great majority of professors of Christianity are yet in their sins, following their heart's lusts, and living in worldly pleasures as strangers to this precious faith. The reason given by the author of Hebrews for the unprofitableness of that word preached to Israel of old is its not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Hebrews 4.2 Can the minister then preach without faith? No, and much less can a man pray acceptably to Almighty God without faith, especially when we are told that the just shall live by faith. For worship is the supreme act of man's life, and whatever is necessary to inferior acts of religion must not be lacking here. This may lessen the amazement in any as to why Christ so often scolded his disciples with the words, O you of little faith. And yet, he tells us that one grain of it, though as little as a mustard seed, is true and right and able to remove mountains. It is as if he said, There is no trial or temptation so powerful that faith cannot overcome. Therefore, those who are captivated by sin and temptations and remain unsupplied in their spiritual needs must lack this powerful faith. So necessary was it of old that Christ could not do many mighty works where the people did not believe him, though his power wrought wonders in other places where faith had opened the way. Indeed, it is hard to say whether it was the power by faith or faith by the power which wrought the miracle. Do you believe, the Lord said, that I am able to open your eyes? Yes, Lord, said the blind man, and so they saw. To the ruler Christ said, Do not fear, only believe. He did, and his dead daughter recovered her life. To another he said, All things are possible to him who believe. I do believe, cried the man, help my unbelief. So the evil spirit was driven away, and the child recovered. He said to one, Go, your faith has made you whole. And to another, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven you. And to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This one passage convicts Christendom of great infidelity, for she prays and receives not. Some in this faithless generation would excuse their lack of faith by declaring it impossible to acquire the faith they lack. But Christ's answer to the infidelity of that age will best confute the disbelief of this. The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. It is not impossible with God to give true faith, though it is certain that without it, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 And if... Without this precious faith, it is impossible to please God. It must certainly be impossible to worship or pray. But some may say, What is this faith that is so necessary to worship, which gives acceptance with God and returns benefit to men? I say, It is a holy abandonment to God and confidence in Him, manifest by a real obedience to His holy requirings, 
which affords sure evidence to the soul of things not seen, and a general sense and taste of the substance of things that are hoped for. As this faith is the gift of God, so it purifies the hearts of all who receive it. The Apostle Paul bears witness that it dwells only in a pure conscience, and in one place couples a pure heart together with an unfeigned faith. In another place we find faith linked with a good conscience. James joins faith with righteousness, and John with victory over the world, saying, This is the victory which overcomes the world, even your faith. The heirs of this faith are the true children of Abraham, though uncircumcised in the flesh, For these walk in the steps of Abraham according to the obedience of faith. This faith lives above the world, where none may come except through death to self, by the cross of Jesus, and an entire dependence upon God. Famous are the exploits of this divine gift, and time would fail to recount them all. But let it suffice to say that by it the holy ancients endured all trials, overcame all enemies, prevailed with God, displayed his truth, finished their testimony, and obtained the reward of the faithful, a crown of righteousness, which is the eternal blessedness of the just. Chapter 7. The Sin of Pride. Having thus discharged my conscience against that sort of unlawful self which seeks to be a Christian, a believer, and a saint, while remaining a stranger to the cross of Christ, and the holy exercises of it, and having briefly described the nature of true worship and the use and role of the holy cross in order to render its performance pleasing to Almighty God, I shall now, if the Lord assists me, more largely prosecute that other part of unlawful self, which fills up the study, care, and conversation of the world, presented in these three capital lusts, pride, greed, and luxury. From these three, all other mischief does daily flow, as streams from their proper fountains. The mortifying of these evils makes up a great part of the work of the true cross, making way for man's much-needed reformation in humility, temperance, love, patience, heavenly-mindedness, and all other graces of the Spirit. The care and love of all mankind are directed either to God or to themselves. Those that truly love God above all are ever humbling themselves before his commandments and loving self only in subservience to him who is Lord of all. But those who have rejected this love to God are lovers of themselves, for all love must center in one of these two. To this inordinate self-love, the apostle rightly joins the vices of pride and high-mindedness, for no sooner had the angels declined their love, duty, and reverence to God then they inordinately loved and valued themselves. This quickly led them to overstep their proper habitation and aspire above the order of their creation. Yes, it was pride that brought about the sad defection and dismal fall of those who are kept in chains of darkness unto the judgment of the great day of God. Pride, that pernicious evil, commonly known by its motions and sad affections in every unmortified soul, began the misery of mankind. Pride is an excess of self-love, joined with an undervaluing of others and a desire for dominion over them. It is the most troublesome thing in the world. 
There are four things by which pride has made itself best known to mankind, the consequences of which have brought about a degree of misery equal to its evil. The first is an inordinate pursuit of knowledge. The second, an ambitious seeking and craving after power. The third, an extreme desire after personal respect and esteem. The last excess is that of worldly possessions and adornments. To the just and true witness of the eternal God placed in the souls of all people, I appeal as to the truth of these things. To the first, it is plain that an inordinate desire for knowledge introduced man's misery and brought a universal fall from the glory of his primitive state. Adam desired to be wiser than God had made him. It was not enough to know his Creator or to give him that holy homage to which his being and his innocency naturally engaged and excited him, nor to have an understanding above all the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, joined with the power to rule over all the visible creation of God. No, he must be as wise as God, too. This unwarrantable pursuit, this foolish and unjust ambition, made him unworthy of the blessings he received from God. It drove him out of paradise, and instead of being lord of the whole world, Adam became the earth's most wretched vagabond. What a sad change! Instead of being as gods, they fell below the very beasts. The lamentable consequence of this great defection has been an exchange of innocency for guilt, and of paradise for wilderness. But what is even worse? In this state, Adam and Eve acquired another god besides the only true and living God. He that enticed them to all this mischief furnished them with a vain knowledge and a dangerous wisdom, the skill of lies and evasions, shifts, accusations and excuses. They lost their plainness and sincerity, and from an upright heart, the image in which God had made him, man became a crooked, twisting serpent, the image of that unrighteous spirit to whose temptations he yielded up his obedience and his paradisical happiness. This is not limited to Adam, for all who have fallen short of the glory of God are true-born sons of his disobedience. They, like him, have eaten of what has been forbidden. They have committed the things they ought not to have done, and left undone the things they ought to have done. They have sinned against that divine light and knowledge which God has given them. They have grieved his spirit, and the dismal sentence has indeed been executed. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. That is to say, when you do the things which you ought not to do, you shall no more live in my favor, nor enjoy the comfort and presence of my spirit. This is a dying to all those innocent and holy desires and affections with which God created man. And so he becomes cold and numb, insensible of the love of God, of his Holy Spirit, power and wisdom, of the light and joy of his countenance, of the evidence of a good conscience, and of the approbation of God's Holy Spirit. Having fallen, Adam's knowledge of God stood no more in a daily experience of the love and work of God in his soul, but in a notion of what he once knew and experienced. This being not the true and living wisdom that is from above, but a mere picture, it cannot preserve man in purity, but rather puffs up and makes people proud, high-minded, and impatient of contradiction. 
This was the state of the apostate Jews before Christ came, and it has been the condition of apostate Christians ever since he came. Besides a variety of bodily performances, their religion stands either in what they once knew of the work of God in themselves, a work from which they have revolted, or in a historical belief and an imaginary conception of the experiences and prophecies of such holy men and women of God as, in all ages, have deserved the name and character of his true children. Such a knowledge of God cannot be true, and by experience we find that it ever brings forth quite contrary fruits to true wisdom. For as the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and easy to be entreated, so the knowledge of degenerate and unmortified men is first impure. Indeed, it came by the commission of evil, and is held in an impure conscience and heart which disobey God's law and daily do those things they ought not to do. For this they stand condemned before God's judgment seat in the souls of men, where the light of his presence searches the most hidden things of darkness, the most secret thoughts and concealed inclinations of ungodly men. Yes, this is false wisdom, and as it is impure, so it also is unpeaceable, cross, and hard to be entreated. It is forward, perverse, persecuting, and jealous that anyone should be better, and then hating and abusing those that are. It was this pride that made Cain a murderer. It is a spiteful quality, full of envy and revenge. What? Was his religion and worship not as good as his brother's? He had all the exterior parts of worship. He offered just as Abel did, and the offering in itself might have been as good, but it seems the heart that offered it was not. So long ago did God regard the interior worship of the soul. What was the consequence of this difference? Cain's pride could not bear to be outdone by his brother. He grew wrathful and resolved to vindicate his offering by revenging its rejection upon his brother's life. And without any regard to natural affection or the low and early condition of mankind, he barbarously stained his hands in his brother's blood. The religion of the apostatized Jews did no better, for having lost the inward life, power, and spirit of the law, they were puffed up with the knowledge they had. Their claims to Abraham, Moses, and the promises of God, in that condition, served only to raise them up to a horrible pride, arrogance, and cruelty. They could not bear true vision when it came to visit them and entertain the messengers of their peace as if they had been wolves and tigers. It is remarkable how the false prophets, the great schemers against the true ones, were ever sure to persecute them as false, and by their influences with earthly princes or with the poor seduced multitude, made other men the instruments of their malice. So it was that one holy prophet was sawn asunder, and another stoned to death, etc. Oh, how proud and obstinate are false knowledge and all who aspire after it! Indeed, this made holy Stephen cry out, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear, you resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. True knowledge came down with the joy of angels, singing peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And false knowledge entertained it with slander and violence. Yes, they stoned him, and frequently sought to kill him, and at last they wickedly accomplished it. But what was their motive? Because he cried out against their hypocrisy, 
their lifeless ceremonies, and the honor they sought from men. Indeed, they give the reason themselves in these words. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe in him. Yes, he will take away our credit with the people. They will adhere to him and desert us, and so we shall lose our power and reputation with the multitude. The truth is, he came to level their honor and overthrow their proud religious system, and by his grace to bring a people to that inward knowledge of God which they, by transgression, had long departed from. Then they would see the deceitfulness of their blind guides who, by their vain traditions, had made void the righteousness of God, and who were so far from being the true teachers and living expounders of it, that in reality they were the children of the devil, who was a proud liar and cruel murderer from the beginning. Seeing how their pride and false knowledge had made them incapable of receiving the simplicity of the gospel, Christ thanks his Father that he had hidden its mysteries from the wise and prudent, and revealed them unto babes. This same false wisdom swelled the minds of the Athenians to such a degree that they despised the preaching of the Apostle Paul as a vain and foolish thing. But this Apostle, who, more than all the rest, was educated in the learning of those times, bitterly reflects upon the wisdom so much valued by Jews and Greeks, saying, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then gives a good reason for it, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Which is to say, God will stain the pride of men in their false knowledge, that they should have nothing to be proud of, for all will depend upon the revelation of the Spirit of God. Indeed, the Apostle goes even farther and affirms, that the world through wisdom did not know God. That is to say, man's wisdom was so far from being a help that, as men use it, it was a hindrance to the true knowledge of God. And in his first epistle to his beloved Timothy, he concludes thus, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoid profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This was the way of apostolic times when divine grace gave the true knowledge of God and was the guide of Christians. But what has been the success of those ages that followed the apostles? Is it any better than that of the Jewish times? Alas, not one bit. Indeed, they have exceeded the Jews in their pretenses to greater knowledge and also in their degeneracy from the true Christian life. For though they have had a more excellent pattern than the Jews, to whom God spoke by Moses his servant, namely Christ, the beloved Son, the express image of the Father's substance, the perfection of all meekness and humility. And though they seemed addicted to the adoration of his name and the veneration of his blessed disciples and apostles, yet so great was their defection from the inward power and life of Christianity in the soul that their reverence proved little more than formal and ceremonious. Notwithstanding, they, like the Jews, were zealous in decorating their sepulchres and busy in carving their images. Yet, with respect to the great and weighty things of the Christian law of life, namely love, humility, and self-denial, they were degenerate. They grew to be high-minded, proud boasters, with natural affection, curious and controversial, ever perplexing the church with doubtful questions filling people with disputations, strife, and wrangling, 
drawing them into sects and divisions till they at last fell into bloodshed. Oh, the miserable state of these pretended Christians who, instead of Christ and his apostles' doctrine of loving enemies and blessing those that curse them, teach the people, under a notion of Christian zeal, to most inhumanely butcher one another. And instead of suffering their own blood to be shed for the testimony of Jesus, they shed the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, calling them heretics. Thus the subtle serpent, or crafty evil spirit, who tempted Adam out of innocency and coaxed the Jews from the law of God, has beguiled the Christians by lying vanities to depart from the Christian law of holiness. Accordingly, they have become his slaves, for he rules in the hearts of the children of disobedience. It was pride, which is always followed by superstition and obstinacy, that set Adam upon seeking a higher station than God placed him in. The Jews, out of the same pride, seeking to outdo the holy pattern given by God to Moses upon the mount, taught for doctrines their own traditions, insomuch that those who refused conformity to them ran the hazard of death. So too nominal Christians, from the same sin of pride, with great superstition and arrogance, have introduced, instead of a spiritual worship and discipline, that which is evidently ceremonious and worldly, with their great innovations and traditions of men which are the fruit of the wisdom that is from below. And as this unwarrantable pride set them at first to pervert the spirituality of Christian worship, making it rather to resemble the shadowy religion of the Jews and the gaudy worship of the Egyptians, than the plainness and simplicity of the Christian institution. So has the same pride and arrogance spurred them on, by all imaginable cruelties, to maintain their great image. The meek supplications and humble protests of those that kept close to the primitive purity in worship and doctrine could not prevail with these nominal Christians to dispense with the imposition of their traditions. But as the ministers and bishops of these degenerate Christians grew ambitious, covetous, and luxurious, more resembling worldly potentates than the humble-spirited and mortified followers of the blessed Jesus, so almost every history tells us with what pride and cruelty, blood and butchery, even unusual and exquisite tortures, they have persecuted the holy members of Christ. These true Christians call martyrs. But the clergy, like the persecuting Jews, have called them blasphemers and heretics, so fulfilling the prophecy of our Lord. No doubt, such persecutors are the wolves that the apostle foretold would arise among them, not sparing the flock of Christ, after the great falling away should commence, which apostasy was foretold by him as being necessary for the proving of the faithful and the revelation of the great mystery of iniquity. I shall conclude this subject with the following assertion, which is an undeniable truth. Wherever the clergy has been most in power and authority, and has had the greatest influence upon leaders and states, there there has been the most confusion, contention, bloodshed, imprisonment, and exiles. To prove this, I call upon the testimony of the records of all times. How it is in our age... I leave to the experience of the living, but here is a charge that can hardly be disputed. The people are not converted, 
but rather debauched to a lamentable degree. The worship of Christendom is visible, ceremonious, and gaudy. The clergy are ambitious of worldly preferments under a pretense of spiritual promotions, making earthly revenue much the reason of their function. Thus, with their pride and avarice, which the Apostle Peter foresaw would be their snares, they have drawn after them great ignorance, misery, and godlessness upon the Christianity of our time. The way of recovery from this miserable defection is to come to a saving knowledge of true religion, which is an experience of the divine work of God in the soul, obtained by diligent obedience to the grace of God that appears in your own soul. This grace brings salvation, turning you out of the broad way into the narrow way, from your lusts to your duty, from sin to holiness, from Satan to God. You must see and abhor self. You must watch and pray and fast. You must not look at your tempter, but at your preserver. Avoid evil company, retire to solitude, and be a chaste pilgrim in this evil world. Thus you will arrive at the knowledge of God and Christ, which brings eternal life to the soul. It was Christ's complaint of old that light had come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. If you desire to be a child of God and a believer in Christ, you must be a child of light. You must bring your deeds to it and examine them by that holy lamp in your soul, which is the candle of the Lord that shows you your pride and arrogance and reproves your delight in the vain fashions of this world. True religion is a denial of self. Yes, and of self-religion too. It is a firm tie or bond upon the soul to holiness, the end of which is happiness, for by it men come to see the Lord. The pure in heart, says Jesus, will see God. He that comes to bear Christ's yoke is not carried away by the devil's allurements. Indeed, he finds far greater joys in his watchfulness and obedience. Had Adam minded that holy light in paradise more than the serpent's bait, and stayed his mind upon his Creator, the rewarder of fidelity, he would have seen the snare of the enemy and resisted him. Oh, then, do not delight in that which is forbidden. Look not upon it, if you desire not to be captivated by it. Did Christ submit his will to his fathers, and for the joy that was set before him, endure the cross, and deny the shame of a new and untrodden way to glory? You also must submit your will to Christ's holy law and light in your heart, and for the reward he sets before you, endure his cross and despise the shame of it. Many desire to rejoice with him, but few will suffer with him or for him. They will follow him for the loaves of bread, but the bitter cup of his agony they leave. Yes, many will magnify his miracles, who are yet offended at the humiliation of his cross. But, O oh man, as he has done for your salvation, so you must do for the love of him. You must humble yourself and be content to be of no reputation, that you may follow him, not in the carnal, formal way of vain man's tradition and prescription, but in the new and living way which Jesus has consecrated.
All who walk in this way do travel to the eternal rest of God, into which he himself has entered, who is the holy and only blessed Redeemer. Here ends this version of No Cross, No Crown by William Penn. The unabridged version continues beyond this point with an exhaustive treatment of the sins of pride, avarice, and luxury, describing their many branches and fruits and the corrupting effect they have on the heart of man. The unedited treatise can be found in the Friends Library, Volume 1, or through several online resources.